to the worship team. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Bert. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mr. Rattigan. Anytime you get a guy called Mike from Melt Boss, you know you're in for a treat. <laughs> so I've got a word for the Lord for us tonight that I, just has been confirmed in the prayer meeting and, and, and on that. Uh, just to confirm, I think, just how much Jesus loves us. I think, I think sometimes, you know, we can kind of theologically accept that. But I, I want to go beyond that. Jesus doesn't just love you. He likes you. <laughs> yeah? That, that can almost be harder to accept for us, right? You know, he has to love us because that's a command and, you know, that's, you know. But he likes you. And he wants to hang out with you. That I find incredible because not many people want to hang out with me. <laughs> oh. And in Revelation chapter 3... Uh, verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you will let me in, I will come and eat with you. And that's a verse that's been used often for evangelism, and it, it can apply. You know, if you don't know Jesus, he wants to come and he wants to, to start a relationship with you. But that verse was written to a church. And he's saying, Will you let me in? So just imagine for a second, you get home tonight. You're just about to eat your supper or have a cup of coffee or whatever it is, and there's a knock on the door. Hi, it's Jesus. Can I come in for supper? Yeah, of course you can, Jesus. Just give me a minute. And then you look around and you run into the bathroom to put the fresh towels out. And, you know, if you've got kids, you're getting all the kids' toys and you're like, throw them behind the couch. You know, I've got to make my house presentable because Jesus is coming. And so eventually, you know, he stand out there looking at his watch like, what's going on? And eventually you're, hi, come on in. I mean, we do that with people, right? How many of you respond like that if you're getting an unexpected visitor? I do. The rest of you just say, my house is always perfect and tidy. But most of us is like, no, we've got to make our house presentable to allow people in. I think that's the wrong way around. Because Jesus is actually quite comfortable with the mess. And I want to talk tonight about us being a people who are a bit more comfortable with the mess. I I thought worship was great tonight. It wasn't professional, right? But it was great. And I would rather have worshippers than professional musicians. And where we can actually have a laugh at ourselves and say, hey, let's just change chord, guys. Or, oops, I missed. Oh, I got the words wrong. Because we're not, our, our acceptance and our love and our worship is not conditional on maintaining a certain standard. Just like Jesus' acceptance and love for us is not based on us achieving a certain standard. And just like our acceptance of one another is not based on each of us reaching a certain standard. You know, when Jesus says, I, I want to come and dine with you, and Gerald, in the prayer meeting, had a word. Where are you? Big G. And this is so in line with what I'm saying. And he said, Jesus wants to invite us to a feast. And a feast is different from fine dining. You know, dining with Jesus is a little different to dining with the Queen of England. If you got an invitation to a banquet at Buckingham Palace... The food might be top-notch, but I'm not sure how enjoyable the meal would be. Certainly for me and my ignorance and my lack of etiquette. I'd be sat there like, there's 16 forks here, which one do I use? And how do I eat my soup without slurping? And you know, It's like, you know, there's a whole rule of etiquette uh, in, in royal circles, like even how you eat a hamburger. You don't pick it up with your finger. You know, it's like, and I'd be like petrified of, of not doing things properly and being rejected because I haven't met a certain etiquette. I don't think dining with Jesus is like that at all. I think Jesus is 
the most likely to start a food fight. (laughs) I think dining with Jesus is going to be fun. I think dining with Jesus is more about the company than the food or meeting some degree of etiquette or trying to impress anybody. I think Jesus is okay if you spill your wine on on your brand new white carpet. says it's only a carpet. You know what I'm saying? But spiritually speaking, we can very easily get into a thing where perfection is the standard. And I'm going to be talking to leaders a little bit tonight as well. And yes, we do want to glorify Jesus and we want to give him his best. And when we look at the church and we look at things that, when, that, that are short of, of, of glorifying him perfectly, we want to change. When I look at my life and I see things that aren't fully like Jesus, I want to change. But the reality is Jesus comes where I am now and helps me change rather than me saying, I've got to change to let Jesus in. And the sad, depressing truth, in case you haven't realized this already, is this church is never going to be perfect. At least not while you're a part of it. (laughs) It's true, right? There's an old saying, if you find the perfect church, please don't join it, because it will no longer be perfect. Because the church is made up of imperfect people. Even the elders, this might shock some of you. I know uh, Andrew Selly was in a shop once and he was buying a pie and, and some, some lady who'd been in the church for, for a while saw him and she was shocked that we, he would be buying food. Uh, uh, I want to assure you, I put my trousers on one leg at a time, just like everybody else. Yes, we're aspiring to perfection, but perfection will only come in eternity. What we're striving for now is to allow Jesus to be represented through us. And Jesus didn't always expect perfection from people he came across. In fact, I don't think he ever expected perfection. And I want to talk about being comfortable in the mess. You see, there's two kinds of extremes when it comes to houses. Sometimes, like what I call the Vogue houses, you know, when you look in the magazines and there's some house and it looks perfect, spotless, immaculate, with really expensive furniture and art on the wall and white carpets and white walls and, and glass and mirrors everywhere. And you think, oh, what a beautiful house. And you, you just know children do not live there. <laughs> if anybody lives there. You kind of know they've got the cleaners in just for that shoot and 10 minutes later it's going to be messed up again. But like much of social media and young people, I want to say this, lots of Instagram and TikTok and I know young people, Facebook is Instagram for old people, I know that. But social media is not reality. It's people portraying a two-second image of perfection, which is far from the truth, but it tries to compel other people to attain perfection. And it's an unrealistic, unachievable ambition, which makes you feel like a failure if you don't reach that, and just leads to depression and hopelessness. And Jesus isn't leading us into depression and hopelessness. He's leading us into hope and joy. And so you've got these perfect homes. And they're not homes, they're just houses, most of them. And in some of those houses, the house is more important than people. The property is more important than people. And if you've ever visited a house like that, and I'm not saying if you've got a nice house, it's unwelcoming. You can have a really, really nice house and it's still welcoming. But sometimes you walk into a house, especially when you've got young kids, and you, don't, you feel petrified. Like, if only I had a cage for my kids. <laughs> I remember my brother, when he was very young, we visited friends' houses, and uh, he was left alone for five minutes and managed with a permanent marker to draw all over a friend's white leather couch. (laughs) Don't encourage that. What I encourage is the response of the people whose house it was. Who were like, well, that's what happens when you've got kids. Yeah? I think we still owe them for that couch as a family. but, But people were more important than property. 
People were more important than perfection. People were more important than an image. But on the other scale, you have the Roach Motels. <laughs> you know, have you ever been to a place and it's like, I don't even want to sit down. I've visited many thousands of people in my life, either through sales or shepherding or outreaches. And you go into some houses and they say, would you like a cup of tea? And you go, no, thanks, I'm fine. <laughs> you know, you, you kind of, you, like, ah. Or hotels, cheap hotels where you, you're looking at the bed and going, I, I feel itchy just at the thought of sleeping in this bed, right? And that's not pleasant either. If a house is unhygienic and dangerous, it's not pleasant. So a perfect home is not comfortable. But an unhygienic, dangerous home is not comfortable. That perfect house isn't fit for really living in. And a roach motel is not fit for living in. In the Vogue house, the, house is more, the property is more important than the people. In the Roach Motel, nothing's important. <laughs> In the Vogue home, it's about rules and perfection. In the Roach Motel, it's about anything goes. And the Vogue house is not child-friendly, and the Roach Motel is not child-friendly. And so we can't have either. So what is a healthy balance? A healthy balance is, you know, have we got a home that is welcoming and safe? And I'm not talking a physical property here, although I'm using it as an analogy or a metaphor. Although it's good given that 412 is coming up and we want to display hospitality. Have our homes open to others and welcoming. But you don't have to reach perfection to be welcoming. You don't have to be, you don't have to have an extra bedroom. You can have a couch. In fact, one of my favorite stories, and I'm going to give up some of my treasure in heaven for this, but. A few years ago, we had um, a couple from Brazil come for a conference uh, who, who led a church in Brazil. And they said, we want to come for an extra week. Can we come for two weeks and just spend a week in Cape Town with you guys first and then the conference? And I said, great. I said, but we're, we're moving house. The day the conference ends, we're moving house. So if you don't mind, can you stay with us for the first week when we can hang out and do all our... And then during the conference, when we're going to be busy anyway... Um, if you could stay with somebody else, because we've got to spend that week in between meetings, packing boxes, so we're ready to move. All good. So they arrived, and we showed them to their bedroom, and their bedroom was our bedroom. Because it's a nice double bed, ensuite bathroom, whatever. And they said, well, where are you going to sleep? I said, well, I'll sleep on the couch. And they were like, no, no. I said, please. And so they, we put them in our double bed. We slept on the couch. We slept in, on the kind of sleeper couch and whatever. Then the first day of the conference, the wife, just she battles a little bit emotionally and she had a bit of an emotional breakdown and she was having a panic attack. And we, I just spoke to Chantelle and I said, there's no way we can put her with strangers right now for her sake. And we said to them, please stay with us this week so you can just chill out, you know us, you can relax, you can be yourself. They said, well, what about your move? I said, well, we'll make another plan. If we have to delay it for a week, if we have to, don't worry about it. People are more important than property. And so we did that. And I, I thought no more of it. The week went and we, we came right. There was no major disaster. And then about two, three years later, we were doing a conference in Brazil and I was speaking to a bunch of pastors about 412. And I was talking about relationship and partnership and whatever. And in many countries where People have been exposed to um, very manipulative and abusive leadership, and people have used, like, apostleship to try and take ownership of churches and, you know, just, just abuse that thing. And so I could see a little bit of skepticism, and I was, you know, just trying to share the truth of, of, of Scripture with them. And, and, it, and some of them were being a little bit cynical. And at one point, this lady got up. She said, can I just share something? Couldn't know what. She took the microphone and she said, I, wanted, I want you guys to know that what he's saying is not theory. It's real. And she shared the story of how we'd given them our bed. We'd allowed them to stay an extra week. And it opened up so many doors of the kingdom. It changed churches 
in Brazil because I was willing to give up a bed for a week. We have no idea the impact we can have with our hospitality. So I want to say we've got to be hospitable people. But hospitality, and this is a key thing, hospitality isn't having my mates around. That's a very small part of hospitality. Even unbelievers will invite the mates around for a bri. True hospitality is letting people into my home who are complete strangers, who are very different to me. In fact, the Greek word for hospitality in Scripture is loving strangers. And I look around, lots of strange people here, so you've not got to show. <laughs> but it's opening my, my home to people who are not like me, but also op- opening my heart to people who are not like me. And while I'm using the, the concept of house as a metaphor, the reality is I'm talking about opening our hearts to one another. That our lives are like houses. And sometimes our hearts are like that Vogue house, or, or we want it to be that way. We don't want to let people in unless it's perfect. We don't want anybody to see the mess. You know, even when, you know, one of the elders says, can we do coffee? And you sit down, and you know they're going to try and uh, just ask you how things are doing, and you're tossing things behind the metaphorical couch. <laughs> Let's hide the mess. And sometimes our lives are a little bit like a roach motel because we've given up trying to... It's like, no, anything goes, and we've, we've not got self-discipline. And, we've, and it's like, yeah, I'll open up the door, and people go, oh, I'm not sure I want to go in there. But are we happy to meet people where, we're, where they're at, even if it's a roach motel? Are we happy to come and sit with people in their mess? Or do we, despite our, our theology, yeah, so we have a th- theology of grace, right? That it's purely by the grace of God. But in our practice with people, do we practice grace? Or do we practice a subtle form of legalism where we expect a certain standard before somebody's acceptable? You see, we've got a number of values not just gen values, but, but New Testament values that we aspire to. And when they work together well, they help and, and, and they work together and they flow together. One value, for example, is a value of holiness. We value holiness. We want to be an obedient people. We want to be a godly people. We want people who, who reflect Jesus. We want, we want to deal radically with sin. Yeah? Is that value that we hold? We want to reflect Jesus in our, in our lives, in our words, in our deeds. At the same time, we've got a value of accountability, that we want to be open with each other, reveal what's in there. And if we don't do that well, what happens is people say, I can't be accountable because I'm not holy. I'm not perfect. And these people expect me to be perfect. So how can I open my life? I'll be rejected because I'm not perfect. Whereas what should be happening is, I'm not perfect. I need to invite somebody in. But people want you invite you into their mess if they think all they're going to get is criticism and all they're going to get is finger pointing. Imagine being invited to my home and my home is often a mess. Invite, imagine being invited into my home, and as you walk in, the first thing you do is, Mike, you've got some dirty dishes there. Don't you think those should be clean? Mike, you, maybe that wall needs a bit. It's like, really? I've just invited you into my home, and before you've done anything, all you do is tell me where my home needs to be better. What response is that going to engender in me, do you think? You're not going to get invited back soon, Right? So what makes us think we can do that with people when they let us into their hearts? And often we do it because we're well-meaning. We want to help people. How many of you have a desire to help other people become like Jesus? Wonderful. But too often we can be focused on fixing rather than just sitting with people in the mess. I want to show us a little two-minute video. Some of you will have seen it before. Can you play that? It's a little, you can find it on YouTube.
you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless and I don't know if it's gonna stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever gonna stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there... Stop would... trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing... You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. No, see, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, out. you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just... Sometimes it's like there's this achy... I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. Yeah, I, that sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Oh, come on! Ow. If you would just don't try to see things my way. Do I have? Now, I'm sure none of you find that amusing at all because you don't identify with either party. But I think it's so true, to, especially husbands and wives, men and women. Men like to fix things. And I have to say, sometimes it's about the nail. Okay? So it's not about just... A, but sometimes what people need before you address the nail is somebody just to listen just to sit with you, just to feel the pain. And sometimes there is no easy solution. And when there's no easy solution, people don't want cliches. They don't want, you know, pop reference scriptures just thrown out at them. Sitting down with somebody yesterday who lost a child, the 10-year-old son died. And I said, I have no idea what to say to you in this circumstance. And I have no answers for you. Now, I have some theological answers about why children die. But that's not the time and place to try and teach them theology. That's where they just need somebody to weep with them. I don't want to be Job's friends. Job's, it's Job's suffering and his three friends come around and try and give him theology. Likewise, the prodigal son runs home to his father and his father doesn't say, oh, wait a minute, let me just check. Um, let me check the, the, the reality of your repentance, this, this, this uh, you know, It's like he embraces his son and he accepts him back in the home. But I'm pretty sure, and Scripture doesn't tell this, but I'm pretty convinced the next day they had a serious conversation. But what is our first response? The same with the church. It can be individuals or the church. How many of you are aware that there's things in this congregation that aren't as good as they should be. Come on, be honest. How many of you can spot gaps and holes and problems in this congregation? Well done, you are human and your eyes are open. <laughs> it's easy to spot problems. What we do, so what do we do with that? Do we complain about it? Do we gossip about it? Do we pray about it? Do we contribute towards a solution? And so... It's easy to spot a mess. And it's particularly easy to spot somebody else's mess. But are we sometimes comfortable just sitting with them in the mess? Not excusing it, but saying, I just want to be with you. And when the time's right, I'll help you. My daughter has got me watching a show with her. I don't really enjoy it, but it's time with my daughter. So, you know, and it's a, it's a show where um, they go into houses where people have been hoarders. <laughs> and this team comes in and says, right. We're, and it's like in every show, the, the hoarder is saying, no, don't get rid of that, don't get rid of that, don't get rid of that, don't get rid of that. And in this particular version, I know there's probably several shows like it, they have a psychologist there who says, we won't throw anything away that you don't agree to. But we've got to bring you to a place where you will agree to throw things away. 
And there's a sense that we've got to work with people to clean the house, not override people. Have you noticed? Autonomy isn't a word you hear in the church very often, right? That, that we're autonomous beings. We make our own choices and our own decisions. We hear about um, being dependent on others and being in submission. All, but there's still a sense of autonomy. So when I counsel somebody, when somebody comes to me and says, Mike, what should I do? My favorite answer is I have no idea. What did Jesus say to you? Oh, I don't know. Well, go away and pray about it. Then come back and let's talk. Now, in some extreme cases, there are people who need direction. They need advice. But usually the last thing people want or need is advice. What they need is somebody to help them hear Jesus. That can take a little bit longer. It can be a little bit more uncomfortable for us because... The way they do it is different to our way. And sometimes we're quicker than the Holy Spirit. Seriously. We try and bring conviction in an area that the Holy Spirit hasn't yet. And that can do more harm than good sometimes. I'm not saying we excuse sin. But think about your own life. So, Carl, I'm going to pick on you because you're big and strong and tough. How long have you been saved? 35 years. When you got saved, did you repent of sin? I hope so. Uh, and, and then Jesus began to point things, things out in your life. Oh, so he still does today. So why didn't he po- point it out? Those things he's pointing out today, why didn't he point out 35 years ago? <laughs> you may not have been read. There's like, imagine coming to Jesus and he points out every single problem and issue and sin in your life. Sort it out today. By his grace, he says, we'll get there. But I'm going to prioritize. And when we're quicker than the Holy Spirit, it's, it, become, it can easily become condemnatory because the Spirit hasn't convicted them and hasn't empowered them to change in that area. So let me give you an area, cause, uh, an example, because some of you might be struggling with this and thinking, I'm saying it's, you know, de- you know, we don't have to deal with sin. Some years ago, we had a girl visit the church and get saved. And it was incredible. She'd come out of prostitution, drug addiction. Uh, just, you can imagine her life and her lifestyle completely broken. And she had a wonderful encounter with Jesus. Uh, she came out of prostitution, which meant she had no money, nowhere to live. Uh, she was in fear of retribution from those who'd controlled her. You know, just battling with shame and guilt. And, and I don't belong amongst all these reputable people. And (laughs) if only you knew these people. But she got saved and she started coming to church. And she was in a meeting once and at one point she stepped outside for a cigarette. And somebody saw her smoking and told her that's a sin and that she's wrong. She never came back. Now, I don't believe Christians should smoke. I think it's damaging to the body. I think it's a, a dependence on, a, on nicotine rather than God's. Whatever reason. If you smoke and you're wondering why I, I think it's wrong, we can chat. But for her, was that the biggest thing that Jesus wanted to deal with in that moment? No. And what she needed was somebody who would just sit with her in a mess. Nobody knew more than she did how much of a mess her life was. And what she needed above all else was somebody to come and dine with her. Are we willing to just spend time with people in their mess? And as people, are we open, are we willing to open up the door to people and let them into our mess? We need to be comfortable with the fact that things are a little messy. That people are more important than perfection. We need to allow for mistakes and messes. You know, John, the Apostle John wrote to the church and he said, Fathers, I commend you, and young men and children. And in a multi-generational household, that's a sign of health. But here's the thing about 
multiple generations. A healthy household needs fathers. But fathers have got the wisdom, they've got the experience, they've got the solidity. They maybe don't have the energy that young men have. So fathers need young men in the house. And then where there's young men, we need children. Because children bring life and laughter. Yeah. They bring, but they bring mess. Yeah. Everybody knows you don't buy white furniture and white carpets when you've got newborn kids. It's like the two don't mix. Having children is messy. And in the church, it's the same. If we're going to see people saved, if we're going to see people welcomed, we've got to meet them where they're at, and their lives will be messy and inconvenient and expensive for us. I remember Stephen Cathy Corkill uh, and, and me and Chantel, we were, we were very close uh, before they moved off to Mossel Bay. And when their kids were very young, we said, why don't you two go away for a weekend? We'll babysit your kids. And so we babysat the three kids for a weekend. And on the Friday evening, I was rushing as usual. I was going off. I was, I was a youth leader at the time, and I was, I was going off to a youth meeting. And Chantal said, listen, I've got these three kids. Can you just hold the baby for a second? Gave me the baby, and the baby peed all over me. <sighs> now I've got to go get washed and changed. I'm already late. Children are a pain. <laughs> Children are expensive and inconvenient. On one level, it makes no sense to have kids. So why do we have kids? Because they bring joy and life and hope and a new generation. And it's the same in the church. And I want to say this. If you are spiritually less mature, that's okay. And if you pee on me spiritually, that's okay. If you're a grown man who tries to pee on me, that's not okay. You understand what I'm saying? (laughs) My daughters are now 18 and 17. I don't change the nappy anymore. But when they were babies, I did. And so part of the mess is understanding the stage that we're at. And being comfortable with that. Not being comfortable with sin but being comfortable with my mess, with my weaknesses. And I forget, I think I was, I was talking to somebody the other day, I think yesterday. I said, man, just be willing to make mistakes. We've got to be happy with mistakes. Because if we don't make mistakes, it's because we're not trying hard enough. The motorcycle rider who's never crashed has just never ridden fast enough. A musician who's never played a wrong note has just never stretched himself. And so it's not about remaining where we are. It's understanding that there's a journey of growth. But we won't grow unless we make mistakes and unless we're a household that's comfortable with mistakes. Imagine as a father, if the first time my daughter tried to walk and she fell on a bum, I said, well, that's pathetic. (laughs) No. She took a step. Yay! Or as parents, when, when your kids come home from school and they present that drawing to you, and you say, that's a beautiful giraffe. And they say, Daddy, that's you. Yes, it's me. I can see it's me. <laughs> I was just looking at it wrong. It looks just like me. It's brilliant. I'm going to put it on. The... As a parent, are you proud of that picture? <laughs> Why are you proud of that picture? Because it's rubbish. Objectively speaking, it's rubbish. Right? Why are you proud of it? Because your kid did it, and they did it for you. So why do we sometimes, especially leaders, elders, deacons, community leaders, worship leaders, whatever, somebody does it, and it's really not very good. And I'm not saying be dishonest, but... Are we, are we comfortable with the fact that it's the heart of it, that it's a contribution, the love of it, that we're encouraging people to grow into maturity, and the only way they'll do that is if we encourage them, even in mistakes.
If our lives are like houses, do we only present a tidy, neat facade when we let others in? Do we only let people into one part of the house where it's the one room we've tidied? Have we got all the toys and the mess hidden behind the couch? I want to ask you, what's, what's hiding behind your couch tonight? Because your fear is, if people see the mess, they'll reject you. And I want to say, unless you can allow people into your mess, they're not really family. When family comes, they come and we, oh, hi. When strangers come, it's like we've got to make it perfect. Why are we killing ourselves to impress strangers? And can't we let each other in to see the mess? Knowing that we won't be condemned, but we will be helped. In 1 John 1 verse 7, it tells us this. You know, I like to throw the odd scripture into my preaching. <laughs> but if we walk in the light, in other words, if we, if we allow things to be seen, if we reveal things, if we bring them out from behind the couch, just as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. In other words, if I come to your house and I see what a mess it's in, I can just sit with you and go, I love you anyway. And then maybe if it's appropriate, I can say, I can see you're struggling. Can I help you? Do you need help? Let me help you deal with this. And not only do we then grow closer because we know each other truly as we really are, but we're allowed, then we allow each other to help us and Jesus to come in and cleanse that mess. So I'm not saying we're comfortable with the mess because we want to stay in the mess. I'm saying we're comfortable with the mess so that at the right time Jesus can deal with it. And relationship really is more important than having everything correct. When in the early days of my marriage to Chantel, we were part of Josh Jen. Uh, we lived in Edgemead. Lived on Letchworth Drive back in the day. Um, I worked in Pinelands. Chantel worked in Rondebosch. And we had one car. So every morning, sounds like fun, doesn't it? Driving from Edgemead to Rondebosch to Pinelands. And then every night, every night from Pinelands to Rondebosch. Not usually to Edgemead, usually to Tableview. Because we used to have church meetings probably four or five days a week. And then we'd have a, a church meeting and most of the guys were single or childless back then so they didn't worry about finishing by 9 o'clock so a meeting could go until 10 o'clock or whatever and then, and then get home, then have supper, go to bed, wash and repeat every day. So it was pretty busy. It was a pretty, pretty hectic lifestyle. And we'd have people in our house often. And I remember one night we got home. We had a, a fairly easy night. We, we had time. And I just wanted to sit and spend time with my wife. And she was in the kitchen washing the dishes and cleaning. And my wife was a little OCD. It got to a point I could never help her clean up because I could never do it right. Like, if I went to bed after her, she'd say, did you put the TV remotes back where they belong? And I said, yeah. Then the next morning, she'd shout at me because they weren't in size order. Or putting the cups away after washing up and all the handles had to be facing the same direction. You know, it's like... So I was sat there and I was wanting to spend time with my wife. And she was busy washing the dishes and putting things away and cleaning. And I said, why don't you come sit with me? She said, I'm, I need to tidy up. I said, no, but I want to spend some time with you. And she said, I'm trying to be a good wife. I said, I appreciate that. I said, but more important to me than a tidy house is time with my wife. And so what I actually did, I banned her from doing any washing up or cleaning for two weeks. <laughs> you should have seen the sink piled high and mold growing on it and stuff. That's not how I lived. That was for two weeks. <laughs> because I was making, and after two weeks I said, are we still, are we dead? <laughs> are we still alive? Are we functioning? Yeah. Life can go on 
I don't recommend not doing dishes for two weeks. That's not what I'm saying. I was making a point. But you understand, my, for me, I knew she was trying to love me by making the house perfect. But what's the point of a perfect house if I never spend time with my wife? What's the point of a perfect life if you're never spending time with Jesus? I can guarantee it's not perfect anyway. Everything's just hidden behind the couch. Because it's only in Jesus that you can deal with these things. So it's not an either or. But it's out of relationship comes out of accepting him in first into our mess. Then he deals with our mess and likewise with each other. Don't wait until your, your house, your life, your heart, your morality, your, your family has reached a certain standard before you let people in. Some people don't want us to have friends around or, or, you know, you wouldn't want the elders coming for supper because you're afraid your kids will embarrass you because they'll misbehave. You know what? Surprise announcement. My kids have embarrassed me and I've embarrassed them more times than I can remember. My kids misbehave. It's reality. Let people in. And maybe they'll be able to say, do you need help? <laughs> Your kids are terrorists. Maybe we can help. <laughs> but that won't happen unless we're comfortable with the mess. Unless we're comfortable with imperfection. Unless we embrace, can I dare say that? We embrace imperfection. We embrace mistakes. Don't make a mistake now. <laughs> um, I, just, I just felt the Lord put the scripture on my heart. It's from uh, one, 1 or 2 Corinthians where Paul says, If I had to boast, I boast in my weakness because that reveals Christ's strength in me. Uh, and so just an encouragement, like if we to boast, uh, it's boasting in our weakness so we can show that what God does in our lives and through us is by his grace and his hand alone. You know, sometimes the challenge is when you get to preach, you get to preach about your good stories. You get to preach about the time you preached and dozens got saved or, you, you, know, you know, people got healed and delivered because you want to build faith. And, and I can tell you hundreds of stories of how God's used me in power. And I can tell you thousands of stories of when I've messed up. And I'm not stood here because I'm perfect I'm here by the grace of God. And I've learned, hopefully, not always, but I've learned that when I mess up, mess up the right way and respond the right way. <laughs> Elders have all the same problems and challenges and, and temptations that everybody else does. The only difference should be that elders, most of the time, can lead by example in how they respond to their failures and sins and transgressions and be open about it but we've got to be open knowing that we are both holy and messed up at the same time uh, hebrews 10 is a powerful scripture that we and this will help us I, I hope to understand our relationship with jesus in these matters it says for a single offering he has perfected that's past tense for all time future tense those who are being sanctified, present tense. So in other words, by his sacrifice, by his death, he made you holy and perfect. He made you an acceptable residence for his presence. He said, I can come in and live with you for all time. But now that I'm living there, can I suggest a couple of changes? Because <laughs> you've been made perfect, but now you are being made you are being made perfect. Another translation says, He has forever made perfect those who are being made perfect. And so when it comes to worship, for example, one of one of the things we're touching on at the moment in the value of worship is it's coming. And some coming and giving our, our all and worshiping the way Jesus wants. And someone's got, I can't worship because of how I've behaved, how I've acted, my actions, my thoughts during the week. And that is a lie. You can come into his presence any time, regardless of how you behave during the week. You don't have to earn your way into his presence. You've been perfected already. You've been made a worthy residence. 
But then when we come in worship, because I love your worship. Now can we deal with those things? And it's in worship that those things are dealt with. Not that we deal with things. So it's like Jesus knocks on the door and says, can I come in? You go, oh, just give it a minute. I've got to tidy the house. He knows, let me in. Let me in to help you tidy the house. I already know what your house looks like. And he wasn't worried about his reputation. In Matthew 9, we read about Jesus hanging around with tax collectors and sinners. Now, I want to clarify something on this because sometimes I speak to people and they're going down the clubs and they're having a few beers and they're like, yeah, but you know, this is okay because Jesus hung around with sinners, so it's okay for me to hang around with sinners. Go, okay. Except I think it's more a case of sinners hung around with Jesus. And there was something attractive about Jesus that people who were sinners would hang out with him. And yet he never compromised on truth. He never sinned. And isn't that a wonderful thing? If we could say, I don't live a life of sin, but sinners enjoy hanging out with me. I won't compromise on truth, but there's still a comfort in my presence because Jesus had this incredible ability to separate the person from the action. And this is a skill we need to learn as parents as well. Rather than say to our child, for example, you are a naughty child. No, you are a good child who's done something naughty. The identity and the action are two things. And Jesus is able to separate the identity and the action. That's why Jesus, in some ways, is more accepting, more loving, more gracious than the most, you know, some, the radical activists today. Because regardless of who you're attracted to, who you sleep with, how you behave, what your views are on any moral or ethical subject, I don't reduce your identity to one component of your behavior. I say you're a person made in the image of God, valuable, worthy, loved by God, who has certain behaviors. And Jesus was able to unconditionally accept anybody. He didn't unconditionally accept everybody's behavior, but he unconditionally accepted every person at the place that they were at and then took them forward. Examples? The woman at the well that the whole village had rejected. And Jesus knows her situation, but he accepts her. He, he converses with her. He asks her for water. He shows her acceptance. And again, if five years later she was still going through husbands at a rate of knots, I think he would have had words. <laughs> He's like, I want to come in and I want to come spend time with you in order I can, I can deal with issues. What about Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus is up a tree. And Jesus says, come. And come into, he invites himself. <laughs> and come into your house for dinner. He didn't say, if you put all your affairs in order, if you pay people back, if you repent, if you do X, Y, Z, I'll come to your house for dinner. He says, I'm coming to your house for dinner. And that changed Zacchaeus. So when it comes to how we deal with each other and how we deal with the lost. Are we truly representing Jesus in unconditionally accepting the person and meeting people where they're at? And I'm so grateful that Jesus met me where I'm at because there's no possible way I could have reached a standard of acceptability. We, like Jesus, have got to be comfortable at meeting people in the mess. We've got to be comfortable that wherever things are relationally based. You see, we could make this church run a lot more slick, a lot more smoothly than it does. We could have better worship, technically speaking. We could have smoke machines and flashing lights. We could have fancy preachers in, in fancy suits with clever, uh, clever three-point sermons and, and really clever graphics. We could put all that together. We could make it professional. 
We could have professionally run home groups. We could divide Edgemead into a grid and say you're in that grid, so you're in B1 home group, and it meets from 7 till 8.30 exactly. And you, We can make it predictable, reliable, professional, and excellent if you want. Or we can base it around a relationship with Jesus and each other, and that's always going to be messy. I'd rather have the mess. I'd rather have the unpredictability. I'd rather have the mistakes. I'd rather have the... Because wherever there's relationships, there's mess. Galatians 6, verses 2 through 5. Can we put that up? It says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So leaders, elders, can I just remind you, you're not better than the people you lead. You are nothing. I am nothing. (laughs) He deceives himself. But let each test his own work, and then his reason to boss will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. And here's a balance that I think we need to understand. Bear one another's burdens, but each carry his own load. In other words, you have a load that you must carry. Your responsibility, your life, your decisions, your relationship with Jesus. I cannot have your relationship with Jesus for you. I cannot raise your children for you. I cannot have your quiet time for you. I cannot pay the tax man for you, even if I wanted to. There is, certain, there is a load that you have to carry your responsibility given by God. And that even your gifting, your calling, your responsibility in the church, that is yours to carry. But we bear one another's burdens. And I say, you know, I will come alongside you to help you. So there may be a burden that you're carrying that I can help you with, but I can't. can't carry your load for you. And too often, part of how we deal with each other is we take on other people's loads by trying to get rid of the mess. So this thing I mentioned about autonomy at the beginning. Do you know that God respects our autonomy? He is sovereign. You know, we can talk predestination and all of those things. But God calls us to worship of our own free will. He convicts us and calls us to repentance of our own free will. And I'm not, I'm not denying sovereignty and predestination. This isn't a, but we have to understand that we have a responsibility before the Lord to make our decisions, to respond to him. And he doesn't override that. Even the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you know, The Bible never talks about us being possessed by the Holy Spirit. Satan would seek to override your will. He would seek to possess you and destroy your individual individual autonomy and make you a slave. God says, I want you to be a willing slave. I will not override your will to make, but I want you to decide to be a slave. And one of the devil's greatest strategies is to convince free people that they're in bondage and to convince people in bondage that they're free. How do you know if you're free or in bondage? Let people in. And if you're being overwhelmed by circumstance or by weakness or by illness or by whatever it may be, then we'll come alongside you and we will carry your burdens with you. But as good leaders, we will not override your responsibilities and carry your load. And that means, as leaders, being patient, being loving, and living in the mess. So in conclusion, and I hope this has made sense, are we comfortable with the mess? Am I willing to sit with someone in their mess? Am I too impatient? 
do I want to fix it today? Am I willing to sit and give people time? Am I comfortable inviting people into my mess? Am I willing to let people see what's hidden behind my couch? Is perfection in our leadership more important than people? Is my sense of success as a leader tied to how holy I see other people's lives? Do you understand what I'm saying by that? As leaders or as parents. One thing I've never said to my kids ever going into a meeting is, you better behave because I'm an elder and you reflect. It's like, what a burden that is. They're not called to be elders. They're called to be children. I can say, I want you to behave because you're my children and it's about Jesus. But it's not about, I look bad or good as an elder based on how good my kids behave. Is my value as an elder tied into how well my congregation is doing? Is my identity as a, as a community leader tied into how many people are in my community? Because then people are less important to you than your position. As a worship leader, is my performance more important than the presence? Are we willing to be messy? Are we willing to be paid? Are we willing to live in that uncomfortable mess for a while? And am I willing to be vulnerable and ask for help when I need it? A couple of years ago, my wife started uh, battling with, she got panic attacks, she was battling with depression to the point where she, she had very little energy during the day to do anything. And the house became quite messy. <laughs> and at first she was unwilling to ask for help, partly because she didn't want to put a burden on other people, partly because she didn't want to undermine what people thought of me. She didn't want to let the church down, all of those things. But she had to come a point to a point where she said, I, I can't do it. And what saved us more than once was people who were willing to come in to our mess and help out. And they helped out physically by bringing meals or, or tidying up. They helped relationally. They helped spiritually. If we'd never been able to open up and ask for help, I wouldn't be stood here today. I might not even be married today. Are we willing to come to that point and say, I can't, I need help? Even if we're a leader. Do I let people in? Do I let people in fully? And can I be the real me? And can people be real with me? One of the things that shocked me a few years ago, a friend of mine, we were having supper, and he said, Mike, can I, can I just confess something? I said, yeah, sure, what? He said, I used to be really intimidated by you. And I laughed, because I thought he was joking. He said, no, for real. I said, don't be ridiculous. I'm, like, I'm the least intimidating person I know. And I told somebody else the story, and they went, no, no, me too. What? I don't understand that. And then a few years ago, Mervis came to Cape Town when he joined Josh Jen, and he phoned me, he said, can we meet for coffee? I said, sure. I arrived at the coffee shop, and he sat there, and Brett Bevan sat there. Oh, that's all right. It doesn't matter. I don't care who's here. But he told me afterwards, he invited Brett because he was too afraid to meet with me alone. He was too intimidated. I'm like, what are you on? What are you smoking? And it's easy to say they've misunderstood. They've, they've, this, this. But I had to ask myself, why are people saying that I'm intimidating? And whose problem is that? And I realize it's my problem. And I have to try 
And I hope none of you find me intimidating. <laughs> I hope you don't find your elders intimidating. I've got to work extra hard to be more accessible so that people can be real with me. You know, one of the things that saddens me in churches is people act differently when elders are around. Why? We're just people like you. Can you go to elders with your problems, with your weaknesses? Can you go to elders and say, I think you've got a problem. I see something in your life that is, that's how it should be. Because we've all got to be comfortable with the mess and I've got to be comfortable that my house still has some mess. And the day I think my house is perfect, then nobody wants to come in. Because it's not a comfortable place for people to be. And I will be deceived because it isn't perfect. So can you be you? And can you allow people to be themselves around you? Because when we come to that place, when we're comfortable with each other's mess, when we feel a free invite into each other's homes, and just like in the natural, I love it when people feel they can drop in unannounced. I don't want people to feel they have to make an appointment three weeks in advance. I want my house to feel like a home for anybody that they can come by. As long as they're not offended if I, you know, there might occasionally be a time where I, because there's boundaries, listen, now's really not a good time, can we make it? But in general, I want, I want to be approachable. I want to let you in. And as leaders, just some signs that that isn't the case. A couple of practical signs. If when people phone you, they always apologize because they know how busy you are. What message have you given? Happens to me. Mike, I'm sorry to bother you. I know you're really busy. Yeah, I am busy, but my priority is you. Or if you ask somebody out for coffee and their first assumption is that they're in trouble. Oh, oh, that, that got a giggle. Is that, how many feel like if an elder phone you said, can we do coffee, how many of you would immediately think you're in trouble? Then there's a problem. That's a problem. Then we've become functional. I never want to hear the word clappuccino again. <laughs> when was the last time you found an elder or a deacon or a home group leader and said, can we do coffee? I just want to hang out. That's what it means to live in the mess. And that's what it means to break a mindset of system and of hierarchy and of position and change it into relationship and where we're representing Jesus well. And where we're a priesthood of all believers because somebody who's been saved a day has as much right to speak into my life as I have to speak into your life. We can build around systems. We can build around neat we can build around respectable. Or we can build with mess. And I want us to be a people who are happy with the mess. As leaders, some of our leaders, I want to say to you, you need to adjust and become a bit more happy with the mess and not try and have everything perfect and every person perfect. And for all of us, I think we need to ask ourselves when that knock on the door And Jesus says, can I come in? Will we let him in? And the weird thing is, sometimes when Jesus knocks on your door and says, can I come in? He looks a lot like Jasmine. (laughs) And sounds a lot like Jasmine. And sometimes he looks like Carl. And funnily enough, sometimes he looks like me. (laughs) That's hard to believe, I know. But you know what I'm saying is, we can... If I say I'll let Jesus in but not people, you're not letting Jesus in. If I can't let people in, I know I've not let Jesus in. And it's a risk. It's scary. It's uncomfortable. But that's where Jesus wants us to live. He doesn't want us to be in the vague house, Vogue house. He doesn't want us to be in the Roach Motel. But he wants to be involved in our messy, ordinary, extraordinary lives. He wants to knock that we open up, that he would come dine with us. In the announcement at the beginning, 
Even, even Andrew mentioned the word messy. Where things are messy. And we're not there yet. But we're getting there. Can we be a people who commit whatever our responsibility is, whatever our Lord is, whatever our function is, whatever our position, whatever our relationships are. We said, Jesus, we want a relationship with you. And we're quite happy to sit in the mess for a while, if that's what it means. And are we willing to sit with others in their mess and just love them through it? If we do, we will transform the congregation and we will transform our community because ultimately, that's what people need. We were created for connection. We were created for relationship. And true relationship comes when we walk in the light and we love each other, unconditionally accepting each other and then allowing Jesus to deal with our stuff. Amen? Awesome. Sure. Thanks, Mike. Sure, that is, was an amazing message. I think it really is the, it's always a challenge for us to open up our lives to one another and be vulnerable. And I think my experience of Josh Jen many, many years ago is uh, just exactly that from what Andrew used to model. And we were always in each other's homes and in the mess. And it, it wasn't about how tidy your house was, but we were just there. And I, I know that's in the heart of many of us sitting here. And I really want to encourage you guys, don't wait for that invitation, but make that invitation and do it soon. And just start getting together. Just start inviting uh, people into your home. Don't worry what it looks like. It doesn't matter. And uh, let's make a real effort to connect and get in each other's lives and homes and, and be one of those values that we do life together. And that's, that's what family is all about. And I, I love the fact that this evening, even in, during the worship, it was like it was messy. And it, it actually, Mike, it could, you couldn't have done a better job. <laughs> Where are you? <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was great because it just illustrated that we don't have to have it all together. Um, this is family, and we, we can get it wrong more times than we get it right. So we love you guys. Have a great week. We're looking forward to connecting during the week. And uh, we'll give some information in terms of um, communities and what that might look like going into holidays. Um, Mike, do you want to mention anything about Brett?